You have people that are millennials and you're coming to a workplace and there's older black people that work there already and they're probably trying to give you advice. Like they it might even be coming from like a good place, but it's mm-hmm. like the ways that they had to move and the ways that we get to move in some respects is just different. Hello and welcome to Black Tea, a podcast where we get to have amazing and uncomfortable conversations that concern Canada's black communities. And the way this usually goes is that we start off a segment where we talk about things that make us happy. Then we get into the real good stuff. And then afterwards, we spill the tea. I'm Melina Williams. I'm Andre Demise. Today, we're going to talk about respectability politics with our amazing guest, writer and digital producer. Joining us earlier than usual, Sajay Elder. Hi. Hi. But as for the first segment, let's talk about what made us happy. Mel? So I had plans to talk about something that made me happy this week. But unfortunately, I I would like to address something that didn't make me happy. Perhaps we can turn it. um, You know when you turn a frown upside down? (laughs) Okay. Try to do that. My frown stays upside down. I've never never smiled before, but let's try. (laughs) Um, Okay, so I was talking to this guy. And by talking, I mean the Toronto term talking, which means no serious ties. No one cares about each other. No one invests in each other. And it's not a relationship. Okay, so it's a thing. So I just met a dude, okay? Okay. And I ended up discovering with my own investigative skills that he was married. But it wasn't even that. Forget the marriage. Mm -hmm. He ghosted me because I wasn't married because I didn't have anybody to cheat on. Like I essentially what? got I I essentially got ghosted because I didn't have a relationship. Like because when I called him out for being married, it was like, "Okay, what about you?" Because I'm single, so I actually need to find a man so I can get men. Cuz this guy was wait, hot. Okay. <laughs> So he was upset with you because you didn't have someone to cheat on with well, and therefore not having the same stakes. In- the idea was that I brought it up when yeah. I should have stayed silent. But if I had my own situation going on, like somebody to lie to, we could have probably just coexisted in this wonderful arrangement. And this man was a very attractive person. Unfortunately, the only proof I have is the one picture I have of him from the waist down. But it does prove. <laughs> wow. It does. No, no, no. It does prove. Unfortunately, I'm going to have to move on to this really cute Uber driver that invited me to church. But I'm not going to go to church. I'm going to ask him if we can go on a date. Wait, he, whoa, whoa, whoa. So after your first conversation and you decided that you wanted to like do a thing, he invited you to go to church? Well, I did, I, well in my, first of all, I'm always trying to do a thing. Okay. So that's the problem. He was probably just being friendly. Yeah. So when he was going to give me his phone number, I thought he gave me a, a church flyer. And I, was, I looked at it like it was like... A, a, a nude that I didn't like. I was okay. like, what is this? And then he was like, you have to come, da-da-da. And I'm like, okay, well, then what? But then I realized I don't want to go. I just want to go on a date with him. So I'm going to find his number yeah. and try to go on a date. That is moving <laughs> fast to invite somebody to church. He's a nice before guy. Before you even go on a date. Like, He's a nice guy. You what have, if, but what if he doesn't even like me? What if I go to church and his wife is there? Well. Another wifer. Dating sucks. I love it. Dating is trash. But if we don't date, how are we going to have stories? So wait, you you enjoy dating? I enjoy experiencing things. Oh, that's really sadistic. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What made me happy this week was, it's not as like cool or serious as the stuff that we talked about before, but for anybody who has children that are about age five or younger, you cannot get away from the song Baby Shark. Baby Shark is like, remember how like um, MOPs, Annie Up was for wow. hip-hop moves back in the early 2000s. Remember how that song comes on in the club and every <laughs> just goes buck wild? Remember that? Yeah, so like Baby how, Shark yeah. is Annie Up for Baby kids. Baby Shark <laughs> is Annie Up 
for toddlers and infants is what that song is. Or like DMX up in here. Yeah, well, well, no, it's even harder than that. Because what? Up in, well, up in here was everybody, right? Up yeah. in here, like, everybody was into that. But Andy Up is for a select niche of people. <laughs> and I'm saying Baby Shark is for a select niche of six months old to about four years old. Mm-hmm. Play that song around any of them. You just got to make sure that you move all your furniture, like, get everything out of here because the kids are about to mash out. Yep. <laughs> okay, I'm going to play a clip of the original song. And it goes on like that for a little while. If you have kids that are very young, you know about this song. So I posted on Facebook a couple of weeks ago that, yo, this song slaps. Like, it goes real hard. And then for the next week or so after that, people have just been sending me remix after remix after remix. And then a friend of mine from work sent me the Baby Shark R&B remix. I'm just going to play this for you because I have no idea how, like, a joke remix of a song could go this hard. That's my grandma. Can't forget about grandpa. Oh my god, this is amazing. Oh, that's my family. Yeah, this is way better than the other one. I need my mommy. I feel like men still need their mommy, so this still applies. <laughs> No, that is a Billboard-worthy song. How is that not tearing up the Spotify charts right now? Anyway, I got that R&B remix. It has been making me happy for a little while because I play that song for my little girls, and I start dancing for them, and they're only seven months old, and they're getting to dancing too. That made me happy this week. Whether you want to call it fix up or clean professional appearance or pull up your pants, the fact is that the politics of respectability has a strong presence in black communities. And what it boils down to is the way that we believe that we should present ourselves in public. So here to help us work through the issue, we've got writer and digital producer Sajay Elder. Sajay, thanks for coming in. Thanks for inviting me. So we're obviously going to talk about respectability politics Mm -hmm. and oftentimes... I find that it's a really cumbersome academic term. Mm-hmm. So if you're talking to real people about real things, how would you define <laughs> respectability politics? Just the ways that we alter our behavior, essentially mm-hmm. around white people. Right. The ways that we kind of police ourselves, essentially, mm-hmm. or you know, say this this way or behave in this particular way to appease the uh, larger white majority. Yeah, and I find that like the way that we do it is really like we're taught this. I find that I was kind of raised that way. And and the way that we understand it in public with each other is like we get what we have to do to Mm -hmm. basically survive. Mm -hmm. What what are some of the ways that we have to be respectable in front of people? I think code switching is a really big one, a really important one. Differentiating how you can speak with whom. You probably speak to your friends with a little bit more slang than you might with your parents or boss or, or with your coworkers, stuff like that. Definitely switches up depending on what kind of space you're in. Yeah. yeah. Um, sometimes it's necessary and it's kind of like a means of, of survival, I guess. But mm-hmm. that's th- that's one big way for sure. You know, the ways that you wear your hair, wearing it natural versus not wearing it natural, the way that you dress, more, more or less casual. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of things. On code switching, because I, I find that when I do it, I'm so hyper aware of it. Mm-hmm. And it's been such a long time. So like if I go into a new work environment, it's almost like a game. 
So I'm like, okay, who am I going to act like today? Am I going to be funny? Am I going to be bitchy? Like, Mm -hmm. am I going to show them that I'm this like strong black woman that can do anything? So do you feel like it makes sense or do you feel like we should do away with it altogether? I think that there's levels to it. Like, I think that there's always going to be spaces where you do kind of have to like, you know, figure out what the sweet spot is in terms Mm -hmm. of like how to appease the most people. I don't know if we should do away with it. I think we might have to redefine what it looks like for us and what it looks like for individual people instead of just being like, okay, well, I have to be completely buttoned up, no slang, no, you know what I mean? No kind of parts of my, my real personality come out when I'm around certain kinds of people. There's ways to still be authentic, but still be professional. Like I can't. I can't talk the way that I talk to my friends, the way that I talk to my boss. But that doesn't yeah, mean I mean, that I have to be like, hello, Sarah. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, that's, there's like, there's yeah. like a professional me that's still me right. that I can be without being a complete fraud. With your career, like I just, your writing is really powerful. And, mm-hmm. and a lot of the things you do in the digital space is so authentic. Um, and I'm just wondering if you have any anecdotes or stories when you had to put your foot down and be yourself. I feel like I'm lucky enough because I, I am freelance and I don't have to work like in an office space where I'm negotiating those things really that much. The only thing that really comes to mind is I had this internship at a um, music management company and we were in this boardroom and one of the bosses was like just talking about basically about respectability politics. But he was like using different terminology, talking about like, I'm a chameleon. I can like blend into any space. Mm. Like if I need to be white, I should be white. <laughs> if I need to, and I'm like, whoa. Wait, was this a white dude? <laughs> he was definitely a black Jamaican man. So. Oh God, no. Well, he's like that guy was... in that, that character in Atlanta. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, <laughs> and then, the right. And then he was just like, if you were in a space, like, would you be willing to like cut your dreads or whatever? And I'm just oh, like, God. why would I do, no. why would I do that? And why are you encouraging this, gentlemen? Like, for, first of all, and at that point, my dreads had just, like, just got a little bit of hang time. I'm just right. like, who is cutting them? Right. Who is, I, just, I just started flicking them, like, yesterday. Who's cutting them? <laughs> but what kind of, um, like for that person, what made him make that a part of his presentation? Like, how is that appropriate? Um, I can't even, I don't even know. because And it was weird because we had, like, a really diverse team that we were mm-hmm. working with. So, like, there were people in the room that weren't black. So I'm just mm-hmm. like, I feel like this conversation is kind of weird. Well, it's the um, performance, probably. He wants to show that he's that Negro. Right, 100%. You know, it works for him, but it's not going for me still. Well, you bring up the hair (laughs) aspect of it, and we laugh about it, but it actually means, you know, the the difference between having a job and not having a job. 100%. A couple of years ago, there was a waitress working downtown, a a black woman, Mm -hmm. um, that wore her natural hair to work, and uh, she was asked to go home. So how do you square that? I mean, this is just the way that hair grows out of your head. How, How did we end up in a space where we allowed that to be politicized? Yeah, I definitely think that obviously wearing your hair natural is not a new thing. But I think for so long, like we had kind of acquiesced to like, okay, we're going to relax our hair or or blow dry it or whatever we're doing for so long that I think that over the last 15, 20 years, as so many more black women are wearing their hair natural, it's starting to become this conversation now because Mm -hmm. I feel like in days past, we would have just like side and be like, all right, well, pass me the dark and lovely box. And, you know what I mean? Like, and that's just yeah. what it was. But now I think there's so many 
of us that are choosing to wear our hair natural that it's just kind mm. of I think there's just so much more friction about it now like mm-hmm. I remember I used to work at a hair store and the owner was like yo like we can't move relaxers off the shelves anymore like I have stock sitting <laughs> for months and my, like women we're wow. just not buying them anymore yeah, yeah. so which is dope which is amazing yeah. so, but I think a lot more of those stories are gonna happen because we're starting to realize like um, this thing can literally eat paint off a wall. <laughs> like you can you can dissolve an entire body in lye yeah. and mm-hmm. you're putting that on your scalp like ooh. and it's also like you know blackness is a politic black women's hair is always going to be political 100%. everything we do is a political act fortunately or unfortunately mm-hmm. if we're going to be engaging in these sort of conversations around identity we have to know that like yeah we're making deliberate political choices and some people may not be okay with it i made a joke a couple seconds ago about black men being the weakest link but i think to some extent black men in the workplace have been so heavily subsumed that we don't even really realize it for example you know, the way that we wear our hair in the workplace and now that we speak, act, and talk in the workplace. I'm not going to say that it's like catering to, you know, white-centric standards, but I will say that, for example, how often do you ever see a, a black man in a professional workplace that's got long-ish hair or wears dreads that Very, really. uh, isn't stuck inside of, like, the suit-and-tie modality? Like, mm-hmm. there's we've been so heavily invested in, like, the way that the corporate workplace is supposed to work that we kind of forgot to be ourselves. Yeah, and I feel like the black men that I have seen in sort of those um, super businessy environments who have chosen to wear their hair natural or chosen to wear dreads, it seems like resistance. And, you know, a lot of the time they probably are just trying to exist. It's something to be, you know, congratulated, but it's also just like black people existing. Taking it out of the workplace for a second, what about, you know, where it comes to, uh, to school? Like, I don't know any black male that hasn't gone through this sort of like being made to feel like the exception where white people will say like, oh, you know, like uh, I'm blacker than you. Or if you're a geek, you have different kinds of interests outside of, let's say, like basketball and hip hop. Mm-hmm. It, they'll say that it, it like makes you less black. And it, and then it becomes like a minefield of do I like certain things or not like certain things? Is, is it taking me away from my identity? You know, I can't speak to what that's like for black women, but I feel like there's a certain line of respectability that we're taught you know, inside of classrooms in the schoolyard as well. I definitely, you know, remember that growing up. I was lucky enough to move to the suburbs, but I moved to the suburbs at the time when, like, hello, black people moved to Ajax at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I never had that, ex- I, even though I grew up in the burbs, like, I never had that experience of, like, being the only black girl or, like, I always mm-hmm. had, mm-hmm. you know, peers my age to hang out with. I don't know. I never really f- had that weird identity thing mm-hmm. that, a lot of, I, I, that a lot of black suburban kids I know have. Yeah. But I feel a bit conflicted on t- in terms of, like, the whole having... I guess, non-traditionally, quote-unquote, black interests. I knew so many black people that were into anime or yeah. or, or yeah. rock or whatever. Yeah. So, like... And it's another way to say, like, I'm different than these other black people. Like, it ends, yeah. up, getting, it ends up devolving. And that's the thing, too. Like, yeah. like, for example, like, if I meet an adult who claims that, like... They don't have black friends now because. <laughs> I think they're funny. Oh, well, like the p- black people didn't it's like me so back in the day funny. because I like Red Hot God, Chili Peppers. Right. It's like, bro, everyone likes it's Red like, Hot Chili it's Peppers. It's like still having dreams about in grade eight when you're an adult. It's yeah. time to move on. I kind of think that when black people talk about getting made fun of, quote unquote, for certain things, mm-hmm. I'm just like, was it because of that, or was it because you were like 
unknowingly exhibiting this internalized anti-blackness. Yeah. Like, and you did wanted you, to fit in. Right, Sometimes you want to right? fit in. Like, were they making <laughs> fun of you because you liked anime or was it because you low-key felt like you liking yeah. anime made you better than other black people? And I Bingo. feel like it's usually the latter. Bingo. Usually the latter. Or do people just not like you because you're a weirdo? That too. <laughs> like, you might be a know-it-all. Like, right, like, do they make fun of you because you're smart or because you're a know-it-all right. and you were and condescending? I'm sorry, black, smart, intelligence is, is a black trait as well. 100%. You know, you don't have to be acting white to be a smart person. Or they make fun of me because I like books. It's like, like no. Out of here. Did, you just, did you like books or did you used to say, oh, I read books and I think it's Like Right. And, 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 and kids are terrible. Time, and there are real that are like, yo, read books if you want. Like, people really act as if there's people in these streets bullying people for not reading books. And I I'm never like, got that. Yeah. Listen, I grew up in Rexdale and like <laughs> some of the dudes would say like, no, you can't hang out, hang out with us because like, that's not you. Right. You're yeah. the one who reads books. Who's Go read get, your books. Nobody's getting bullied for reading books. You yeah. got bullied because right. you're a geek but I, and because yeah. you probably were being a know-it-all and being annoying. I just feel like, you know, and I guess to answer what you were asking, Andre, in this question, um, I found a lot of my foundational knowledge about blackness, feminism, and even black masculinity came from Bell Hooks probably about mm-hmm. 15 years ago. And one of the first texts of hers that I ever purchased was We Real, we Real cool, cool Book, the yeah. one on black masculinity. Mm-hmm. And it explores this whole, like, these this exhausting dichotomy black men have to go through, hypersexualized, yet, like... On, um, super cool, yet pressures to do other things. And mm-hmm. like she really traces it, the history of it. Um, and I, I would recommend that book to anybody. It's not um, the newest text in the world, but it's I, I find it enormously helpful. One thing that I, I did want to get into as well is how our parents' politic then becomes a point of conflict with a younger generation. So, mm. you know, especially like if we're the children of first-generation immigrants who came here and had to be respectable in order to integrate into the workplace. Right. It's, it then becomes they want to foist that politics off on us that we have to do the same things that they did, even though we're living in a completely different political environment. Different and the same. And I think that's where the tension comes from. Yeah. yeah. And I think you see that in workplaces, like, you know, multi-generational work, workspaces where you have people that are millennials and, you know, you're coming to a workplace and there's older black people that work there already and they're probably maybe trying to give you advice. Like, they it might even be coming from, like, a good place of them wanting you to be, like, good in the company. But mm-hmm. it's like... The way that the ways that they had to move and the ways that we get to move in in some respects is it's just different. Yeah. yeah. So I feel like sometimes there can be friction there because they're just like, oh, like how can you come to work with your hair like that, mm-hmm. or how can you come to like you know what I mean? Like their their idea of what is proper and and whatever the case is so different from what we consider. Like I'm sure yeah. there's you know older black women that. When I worked at a bank, for example, I'm sure they saw me with my Afrol, and they're probably just like, "What? Like, what is this? Like, but what is going they're on?" They're probably admiring you as well, and yeah. we could also thank the, the, their generation for helping us be ourselves. Absolutely, like we don't really have these exchanges in community to get like we're when we exchange in a um, generational level. I find that it's um, conflict based. Mm-hmm. We can exchange in love. We can exchange in thankfulness too. Mm-hmm. I just want to read uh, before we end. Just a little, I found a really helpful definition on respectability politics. It's by Damon Young, who's from Very Smart Brothers. He's a very smart brother. Um, but it's from The Root in an interview he did two years ago, and he was asked what exactly is respectability politics. And he said, although the concept of respectability politics has existed for a very long time, the term itself is relatively new. Author and professor Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham is credited with first articulating it. It appears in her 1993 book, Righteous Discontent, The Woman's Movement in the Black Baptist Church, 1880 to 1920. 
It's generally defined as what happens when minority and or marginalized groups are told or teach themselves that in order to receive better treatment from the group in power, they must behave better. So I think really Mm -hmm. grounding this in like it's trauma based, Mm -hmm. you know, and discussions like this are really important because like we didn't just get here from nowhere. Absolutely. Yeah, I think a lot of the things that we taught that we that we were taught or that we learned, they, they do come from a place of survival, but as the world changes, like some of those behaviors um, kind of fell away in certain ways. But yeah, like like I said, that older generation, they just kind of, they did it out of survival and I totally understand. Sajay, thank you so much for dropping by and uh, loaning your wisdom to us. Thanks for having me. All right, the kettle's on, the water is boiling. Mel, what's the tea you got this week? So my tea this week has a lot to do with respectability politics, what we were talking about, um, and something that I think about quite often. I really wanted us to discuss the notion of Black excellence. Whenever I think about it, I think of the song entitled Black Excellence on Watch the Throne, where Jay-Z says, Black excellence, opulence, decadence. Mm. But then... Kanye goes on to talk about other things that don't have to do with Black Excellence in the rest of the verse. So it's sort of like we can be a lot of things at the same time. It kind of gives us a way to feel farther from Blackness and closer to white supremacy in ways that we don't really see. So the entry point I want to go from is a Huffington Post article written by Denez Smith. February 2016, so about two and a half years ago. And I'll just read a couple excerpts and give my thoughts. He says, um, wherever I look, I see black people being excellent, yet I'm slow to use the word excellent. In America, excellence can be dangerous. Meritocracy is real and dangerous. Even racism believes in black excellence, trying to point at the black president to diagnose its own demise. Lately, I've been trying to be more aware of what metrics I'm using to define excellence. I don't want my definition of greatness to be dictated to me by the systems used to oppress my people. The article's great. Check it out. I just feel like this whole notion of some of us being different really needs to be blown open. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I critique black excellence, I'm not denying that we're excellent. I really want to point that out. For me, it's an affirmation that we don't need excellence to distinguish us. Like we're actually surviving in a world that denies us many things like citizenship, belonging, safety, protection, and affection. And when you actually look at the way we're treated, it's set up against the way that white supremacy coddles white people, specifically white men. It really is jarring to me. And I also don't want this to be about us not being able to celebrate. I feel like Black excellence is present in our history and it's in our blood and it happened far before the internet. Barack Obama, far before Beyonce, far before Michelle Obama. And if we celebrated black doctors the way we celebrated black mothers, black grandmothers, black children for just merely surviving in the education system, um, surviving in the school to prison pipeline, it would make more sense. But unfortunately, I don't feel like we see these images in describing black excellence. And I think it's possible not to erase people's accomplishments while understanding we're stronger and smarter just in general. We're just going to be resilient anyway. I have absolutely nothing to disagree with in that. And I'm glad you put it that way because I've felt this way for a little while. Andre, what's your tea this week? I was really conflicted about whether I wanted to talk about this, but it's like, you know what? It's our podcast and I'm going to talk about uncomfortable stuff. So here we go. I was on TVO last week discussing deplatforming, which I'm not going to get into because that's not really the point. 
When I was on the show, before the show began, the producer came over to me and asked if I wanted to put on a poppy, and I declined. Um, I don't wear the poppy. It did not go unnoticed by people that when I was on the show, I was not wearing a poppy when some of the other guests and the hosts were wearing a poppy. And I got DMs about that. I got an email about that. People were very discomfited by the fact that I was not wearing a poppy on this show. Listen, uh, we're 100 years past the Armistice Day. We're 100 years past the end of World War I. I would love to know if people really understood what that war was about and why it was fought. Harry Patch, who was the last survivor of the First World War, said this when he was having a conversation with Tony Blair. He said that war is organized murder. The First World War was one of the most horrific events in human history. It was the first time that human beings were thrown in front of machine guns. They were fighting a war the way that war was fought all the way prior to that in human history, but with machines of the future. What it was like to have bodies thrown in front of machine guns and mortar fire and chlorine gas provided some of the most horrific conditions on Earth that it was actually the inspiration for Mordor. When J.R.R. Tolkien wrote Lord of the Rings, this is somebody who had actually been in trench warfare. So the, the, the horror that he was describing in the land of Mordor was inspired by what he saw during the Great War. I'm not going to get into whether you should be a pacifist or not or anti-war or whatever. What I am going to say is this. After that war was over, the reason that people put on the poppy in the first place, it was to signify that we were never going to do this again. And what did we do 20 years later? We fought another gigantic war. I'm not going to get into, you know, the justifications for the war and all that. But what I am going to say is that we got so used to fighting war, not just as a country, but as a planet. You know, 600,000 odd Canadians went off to fight World War I. About 60,000 of them come back. So basically one in 10 people who went to fight the war did not come back. The idea that we wear a poppy in remembrance of veterans' sacrifice, I, I would take to be a noble one if it wasn't for the fact that we are in a constant state of warfare. Not only are we in a constant state of warfare, but veterans who return from these wars, you know, with, with PTSD, with disabilities, like having seen things, having been altered mentally, and having like lost limbs and the ability to perform vital functions, they have to come back to Canada and then fight for their benefits. How is it that, you know, we can talk about the valorousness of war and going off to fight and defend freedom and all of that other stuff, and then you have people come back from that war, and then they actually have to fight to simply be recognized as capable human beings to get jobs, to re-enter the workplace, but also to get treatment for what was done to them in the name of defending freedom. That I'll never be able to understand. And to me, what the poppy represents is just sort of like wallpapering over all of those problems, over the fact that we are constantly at war, wallpapering over the fact that we do not treat our, 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 our veterans with the respect and the humanity that they deserve. The fact that many of the wars that we've been fighting over the last few decades were wars in the name of corporate interests, and the fact that World War I was not fought to defend freedom, World War I was fought between, you know, it was in the name of three cousins, Tsar Nicholas II of Russia, Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany, and King George V of Great Britain. We're basically having a gigantic waving contest, and it cost about 16 million lives. That is the thing that I cannot square. No, I'm not going to wear your poppy. I don't feel connected to it whatsoever. There was only like one construction battalion during World War I that was composed of black veterans that were allowed to even fight in the first place. People ask where my relatives were during the great wars, World War I and World War II. You know, they were in Jamaica, um, in the middle of indentured servitude. That's where they were. 
I don't feel a connection to this, and most of the wars that have been fought in the name of colonial history was to subjugate my people. I just don't feel a connection to it. If you do, that's great for you, and I have no criticisms for you, but don't tell me that I should have to wear the poppy. Because when men with guns show up in places that my people are familiar with, it was usually to put us underneath the boot. I'm sorry, I just, I do not feel I need to wear the poppy. I don't, and don't try to tell me that I should. And that's it. Thank you so much for tuning into Black Tea this week. Special shout out to Frequency Podcast Network for housing us and our sister podcast. Thanks to our show producer, Ryan Clark. Thank you to our music producer, Black Orchid. You can catch me on Twitter at Andre Demise. You can catch me at Melina Williams. And our guest, Saja Elder. You can find her at J-A-E Fiasco. You can find us on Apple, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And if you like the show, please support us with those five-star reviews. And if you're feeling extra generous, drop a written review. Bye.